The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Psalm 16. I'm going to go ahead and read that uh, and then pray and then we'll go ahead and get started. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. God bless his word. Let's pray. Father, you are good to us. You are our faithful God. You are our provider. You are the God who hears, the God who sees, the God who knows the first of our days to the very last. They are written in your book before there was one of them. Lord, in you and in you alone is our good. And we have no good apart from you. Lord, as this word comes forth today, Lord, uh, would you give me clarity to preach the word with clarity that it would be easy to understand. Lord, would you prepare hearts, and I know you have this week even prepared hearts to receive this word. So would you, we invite you, Holy Spirit, would you do tonight all that you intend to do through your word? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Could you give me the water? Psalm 16. um, Thank you. Psalm 16 has uh, its foundation out of 1 Samuel, now commentators will say several different chapters are possibilities here. I believe it's 1 Samuel 26. Now 1 Samuel 26 is uh, a story, or we pick up the story of David. And David at this point is in the wilderness. He has been... Um, he has worked for Saul. He's made a name for himself with Goliath. He's feared by the Philistines. But that 
uh, great power that he has on the battlefield has had him recognized by people. So, so when he would come back, they would say, Saul has killed his thousands. But David, David's killed his tens of thousands. And Saul becomes jealous of David. And eventually what goes on is he, he kicks David out of the kingdom. He pushes David out. And now David, and, and more than just pushes him out, he is out for David's very life. He is committed to killing David. So in our story where we pick him up, David is now in the wilderness. He's got a band of men that are with him. They're a band of warriors. And Saul in this particular place has chased David down into a cave. He heard he was there and he has come to that location to kill David. David is aware of this, and he prays to God. And God basically sets him up for a success story here. And here's what, what occurs at this point in our story. David and one of his warriors, Abishai, go out in the night, and they sneak in to Saul's camp. Now Saul is laying there next to his general and by his head he has his spear and his water jug. Right? Okay. They sneak into camp. They take the spear and he takes the water jug. And Abishai says, look, just let me run him through now. We can put the spear. One stroke. That'll all it take. This will be over. It'll be done. And David says, no, that's God's anointed. We will not touch God's anointed king. God can deal with God's anointed king. He will judge him. But it won't be me, and it won't be by my hand. And so they take the spear, they take the water jug, they make it up to the other side of the cliff where they had been originally, and they call out to the army. And he says to Abner, who was the general, Abner, what are you doing? Are you defending the king? What kind of man are you? And Abner stands up and says, who are you? You know, what, what, what are you doing? And then Saul recognizes David's voice. And he says, is that you, my son David? And David says, it is, my Lord. And as the story goes on, he says, look, I have your spear. And here's your water jug. I could have run you through. I don't have a qualm with you. You have removed my heritage from me without reason. You have kicked me out of the kingdom. You have removed me from the people of God, from my heritage, from God. You have told me to go worship the foreign gods, but I have nothing against you, and I have done nothing to deserve it. And so here, see, I had your spear. I could have, t I could have killed you, is what he's saying. I was right there. I didn't do it. And Saul says, you're a better man than I, you are without blame. And he leaves. So that's the setting for this, for this psalm that we're about to go in. So let's go ahead and take a look now at Psalm 16. He starts it off by saying, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. 
Today, I want us to walk away with a certain, with one key point, and that is that we have no good apart from God. We have no good apart from God. When David makes this opening statement in this psalm, David is setting, if you will, the base for the entire rest of the, of the passage that he's writing here. He's actually invoking something. He's saying that, Lord, I recognize you as the one to whom I owe allegiance. He's invoking, if you will, a, what's called a Caesarian treaty. It's a very old style of treaty. Think high king and a lower king. So you've got a king, a high king who's ruling over everything. And under him, he has a number of lesser kings that he's controlled. Now, he may have done that through war. He may have done that through marriage. But they all owe allegiance to this high king. Okay? David is invoking the rights of this. This is very old. And biblically, it goes all the way back to Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, what happens is Abraham is told by God, look, I am going to make a, I'm making a covenant with you. And Abraham has basically just said, I believe you, God. I believe what you said. Chapter 15, 6 says we have um, that Abraham's faith, that faith that Abraham, that believing in God is righteousness. And then he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. So here's what I want you to do, Abraham. I want you to cut a bull in half or a heifer in half. I want you to cut a goat in half. And I want you to cut a pigeon in half and make a space in between them. This is, sounds kind of odd to us. But the purpose of that was that in the treaty ceremony, the high king and the low king would both walk between those. And at the end of it, they would say, if we ever break covenant with one another, let this be done to me. So it was a, it was a covenant. The high king said, look, if I ever don't fulfill my side of the treaty, which was always had to do with protection and care and provision, those are the types of things that the high king provided. The lower king provided allegiance. And that's what it was. Faithful allegiance to the high king. And so if we ever break covenant, either one of us, let what happened to these animals happen to us. Now, when Abraham does this, this treaty in particular, or this covenant, God puts Abraham to sleep. And only God goes in between the animals. Now think about that a second. There's a strong implication there. God is the one who is responsible. Abraham is never held responsible for the covenant treaty. All of the I wills that go on to Abraham, I will protect you, I will give you land, I will bless you, I will make you a blessing to the nation, I will give you more descendants than the stars of the sky. Only God was responsible for those. Abraham was faithful. That was his role. 
So, when David enters into this treaty or enter, call, makes this call, he's calling on the covenantal God to do this, the God of Abraham. And in fact, if you look at the words that are used here in uh, verse 1, if you have a Bible, take a look at it. He says, preserve me, O God. Just straight G-O-D, nothing special there. Then he says, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, look at the spelling there. It uses like the capitalized version of L-O-R-D, right? And then the next one uses, you are my Lord. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. It uses a capital L and then lowercase, right? Why three different ways? Why two different ways of doing that? Well, in the Hebrew, that's actually three different names of God. So the first one, God, is it just a generic term for the creator God, the second one, Lord with the capitals, is Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal God of Israel. The last Lord, with a small case O-R-D, is Adonai. That is master. So you have creator God. You have Yahweh, the personal God of Israel, the covenantal God of Israel, and then you have the master. And so he says, if you were to change that out a little bit or, or look at the, preserve me, God, creator God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, Yahweh, my covenantal God, you are my master. And I have no good apart from you. So this is very covenantal language. It's very much contractual language and he's calling on now this covenantal God God Yahweh my covenantal God uphold your end of this contract preserve my life because I have no good apart from you I have no hope apart from you you are my good you are my good so preserve me Oh God. He goes on in the next verses to say in three and four, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. He's providing a contrast now. So he set this stage with the covenantal God and said, I trust in you. I put my, all my trust in you. Preserve me. I have no good apart from you. And then he provides this contrast. Saints and idolaters. What does he tell us about these saints? Well, the saints cast themselves on God. They look to God. They trust in God. The saints... Their good flows out of God's good. The saints are his delight. But who else's delight are they? They're God's delight. The blood of the saints is precious in the sight of the Lord. God loves his saints. 
And so David is saying, I've put my refuge in you. You're my covenantal God. My good is in you. I have no good without you. I'm one of your saints. Remember me, O God. And then he contrasts it with idolaters. Idolaters follow after the gods of the land. Remember what Saul had told him? Go follow the gods of the land. Go worship the other gods. Because we're removing you from covenantal Israel. Go worship other gods. So David says, the idolaters of the land, well, what are they doing? They're, they're following other gods. They try to earn their way. And that's really what you have to do. In the other religions, they're sacrificing to these gods to earn favor from those gods. They've broken faith with Yahweh. They've broken faith with a covenantal God, Israel's God. And there's only one thing that they can expect to receive after breaking faith. And that's the curses that flow out of breaking faith with God. So remember we talked about a treaty. Well, there were blessings that went with following that treaty and there were curses that went out of it. If you were to read, for instance, Leviticus 26, 27, you'd find just a whole list of these. And the blessings are wonderful, you know, wealth and good crops, uh, cattle, just galore, everything you would need to have a great nation and great people at the time. And the curses are terrible. They start with things like drought, and then they work their way into famine. And then they work their way into people coming in and, and taking your land by their armies. And they end with terrible things like your babies being dashed against the wall and your bodies laid out in the fields for the birds to eat. I mean, it gets ugly. It is a terrible thing to be under God's judgment. And so David here is pointing out and saying, look, the saints are under your blessing. The idolaters receive your curse. I'm one of your saints. God, I have no good apart from you. Remember me. Be my refuge. Be my strength. Lord, my hope is in you. Following that comparison that he gives, that explanation of what it means to be a saint and what it means to be an idolater. What it means to be one who trusts that God is his only good. He then goes into verse 5. He says, and it's, re it's reinforcing this idea that he's a saint. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So David is saying, Lord, remember this relationship. Remember this covenantal relationship because you are my chosen portion. I am trusting in your sovereignty. I am entrusting in you as my good and faithful God. I am trusting in you as Yahweh to be my provider. Though I am in the wilderness, 
Though I am chased out of my own company, country, though I have been betrayed by those I trusted, I trust in you to be my good provider. You will be my portion. My hope is in you. I have no good apart from you. I have no hope apart from you. You are my God. And he says, you hold my lot. You hold my lot. God is sovereign. And that's what he's saying. You are sovereign over my life. I don't know how this will turn out. I don't know what the next day brings, but I trust in your goodness, oh God. I trust that you are good and that I have no good apart from you. I trust in your sovereignty. You hold my cup. And then he goes on to say, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Well, let's just stop a second and think. How are you saying that, David? No, really, how are you saying that, David? You're living in a cave, hunted, betrayed, abandoned. What did David lose when he left Israel? He left the family of God. He was among the unbelievers and the idolaters. He had left, like, he was under God's condemnation, you would think. I mean, by leaving, by, by being kicked out of the nation, that's what they were saying to you. Now, that isn't what happened to him, but that's what they were saying to him. You're like dead to us. Worse than being dead to us, they were actually trying to make him dead. They were taking a whole army out to kill him. What else had he lost? He'd lost his reputation. David was a great warrior. People looked up to him, and now he's a hunted man. The same men who he fought with, like alongside, were now hunting him down. The very ones who had praised his name would now betray him and turn him in at any opportunity because he had a bounty on his head. The woman he had married, Michaela, the king's daughter, lost her. What did he have? I mean, put yourself in this position for a second. You've lost everything. You are nobody. I mean, literally, you are nobody. You have no history, no heritage, no family. You have no land to call your own. You have no inheritance. You have nothing. And yet David says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I offer to you, David was seeing something more than the physical world around him. He was seeing more than a cave and dirt. And an army out in front of him that wanted to kill him. So what was he seeing? <coughs> David was seeing and looking to a God. 
who loved him, who had made promises to him, who he knew in his soul, in his very being, cared for him and would provide for him. Beyond what his eyes were capable of seeing, he trusted in the living God. He trusted in Yahweh. And all those days in the fields with those sheep singing and praising God and making prayers, all those days of worshiping in the temple, all those days of worshiping in the, in the wilderness, it was paying off because in spite of what he could see, he knew that God was with him. He knew that God would care for him and provide for him. He says in verse 7, I will bless the Lord who gives counsel in the night. And also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. David spent time with God. You've been talking about prayer. David spent time in the counsel of the Lord. He sought God out regularly. Read through Samuel, and one thing you see constantly about David. Lord, should we do this or not? Should we go here or should we go here? Just very practically, God, what do we do today? How do we go about this? Where do you want me to go? And what do you want me to do? Does that remind you of anybody? It was very much who Jesus was. He would go out early in the morning and pray, spend time with his father. If you ever thought Jesus is always, is quite often saying, you see it in, in Matthew and you see it in Luke, they'll say, oh, why are you doing these things? Well, I'm doing them because the, I, the father told me to. I don't go where the father doesn't lead me. I don't say what the father doesn't tell me to say. I do what the father says. I go where he leads. You don't get that kind of relationship unless you're spending time with God. And it's time we spend in prayer with God, seeking his face. David was one who spent time praying. He spent time with God. And that's how he's able to say, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. Because he had a relationship with the living God, with Yahweh, his covenantal God. He didn't look to himself to come up with the answers. He looked to God. Because he already knew he had no good within him. His good came from God. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. And because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. The right hand is the place of power and authority. David's power and authority, he knew, came from the living God. Therefore, he was not shaken. He didn't need to be afraid of a man who had an army in front of him. Because he had the living God on his side. And his hope was in the living God, not 
in the army. Not the men he had behind him and not in fear of an army that was before him. He was not shaken. Finally, he goes into this, this last part in verses 9 through 11. And he says, Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. With his heart and his spirit firmly grounded in the knowledge that God was his only good, David writes, my heart is glad. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. Can you say that? Can you, in your circumstance today, say, my whole spirit rejoices because God is my good? In spite of what you see in elections, can you have faith that God is your good? In spite of bills that you might have to pay, can you say that God is my good? my only good, that I don't have to be afraid? Can your eyes, can you rejoice even though you can't see a good outcome of anything that's going on around you? That's what David is encouraging people to do. That's what David is calling them to do. That's what David is really calling us to do and God through David. Therefore, my heart is glad. Is your heart glad? Can your whole spirit rejoice? Can, it, can your flesh, can it dwell secure even though everything's falling apart around you? The answer to that actually is yes, you can. Because God is faithful and he goes before you. And if your eyes are set on him, then he makes the way for you. Do you trust in God's goodness? Do you trust that God is your only good? Are you able to dwell secure in your heart? Are you able to say, Lord, I have no good? apart from you. If we believe that, if David believed that, how much more should we believe that? Well, why do I say that? Well, this is the very words, this section are the very words that Peter's going to pick up in Acts 2. Yeah, I'm going to jump to the New Testament here. Peter uses these very same words in Acts 2. At Pentecost, when he preaches to the 3,000, or the, the many, and 3,000 come to Christ, put their faith in Jesus. These are the same words he's using to convince them. 
See, these words, this section in particular is written very prophetically. It speaks not only of where David was, but it speaks of a time to come, one who will come. Because David died. His body did see corruption. If you could find his grave, you would find dust. Maybe some bones. But it says here that you will not let your Holy One see corruption. So he must be referring to someone else, to a Holy One who is to come out of his lineage. And that someone was Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, very much like David, would endure betrayal. And he would endure mocking and slander and false accusations. He would endure a maligned reputation. And he would endure death. It is because of Christ that we, like David, can say, you are my Lord and I have no good apart from you. In Christ, the paths of life are made known to us. Even as David said to his father, you make the paths, you make known to me the path of life. In Christ, we say the same thing. You, Lord Jesus, make known to me, the path of life. In Christ, we have access to the Father 24 hours a day. We are indwelt with the Spirit of the living God. Yahweh, that covenantal God, is our God. The same God that David turned to in that covenantal relationship is the same God that we come to through his Son, Jesus Christ. The same God that saves and redeems and draws in the same God who hears and protects and cares for your soul and cared for the soul of David is the same that does it for your soul. It says, you make those paths of life known to me and that in your presence there is fullness of joy that fullness of joy the Hebrew there is actually more of satisfaction of rejoicing in your face that's kind of an odd phrasing in there but what it means is in the face of God you will be satisfied you will rejoice and be satisfied completely when you stand before the face of God. So this passage says, you make known the path of life to me, eternal life. You make known the path of life to me and in your presence there is fullness of joy. We have satisfaction in the face of God. There will be no doubt when we stand before the living God, that he is our good, that we had no good apart from him. But, but right now, we're in the now and not yet. You know, we have this period of life. We have 
the guarantee of the Holy Spirit in us. And yet there is much more to come. There is much more to come. One day we will experience the completeness of the Trinity. The completeness, presence, the living presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We will be right there face to face. We will live in the presence of our Redeemer as those he has redeemed in the fullness of joy, in the fullness of satisfaction that we can only understand in the presence of the living God. So as we close, friends, I I just want to say to you that I believe that the beginning of the fullness of joy and the satisfaction of rejoicing is found when we're able to say, you are my Lord and I have no good apart from you. It is in that sense when we, when, um, when we say on the day of our salvation, Lord, I don't have any good in me. I can't do this on my own. And we turn to Christ. And we say, you are my good. And from that very moment, the spirit of God indwells us. But every day for each one of us, it is a new step in saying, Lord, you, you are my good. In spite of what I see, you are my good. So let me ask you this evening, where are you struggling with that good? Where are you struggling with forgetting? Saying, I have no good apart from you. There's a scary thought here. If you have some other good in you, what is that saying? If you believe that there is some other good than God, then where that puts us is in idolatry. It replaces the grace of God with something else. If you have some good in you, then it's up to you to make a way for your salvation. If that's what you believe, that you have some other good That's a false hope. David's very clear. Lord, you are my refuge. I have no good apart from you. So if you find yourself feeling maybe robbed of joy by the events that have been going on in your life, if you feel like you haven't been experiencing satisfaction in your relationship with God, then I want to offer to you that maybe you have allowed some other good 
to take the place of the only good that is God. So this week, if you found yourself in that place, take time to reflect. And I'd like to do that right now if we have a few moments. Is that okay? Can we do that? Let's take a few moments right now and just look to God. And if you haven't been experiencing that joy, if you haven't had that satisfaction, take a few moments and ask God, what have I allowed to become my good? What have I allowed to replace you, my only good? Let's pray. Let's take a few moments and do that. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.